Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host... David Boris. While both the modern American and Canadian game of football emerged from similar roots, they took very different paths to arrive at the game we recognize today. Americans were much quicker to modify and adapt their game into a uniquely American form of sport, while Canadians were much slower to abandon their English roots of rugby. This is Season 7, Episode 18, To Pass or Not to Pass, The Emergence and Divergence of North American Football. Today's book recommendation is titled Border Boys by R.C. Christensen. This was published in 2022. It was self-published. Border Boys is a book for football fans on both sides of the international border. American and Canadian fans alike will enjoy reading about how both games have a common origin and about how they have intersected and diverged throughout history. To understand the origins of what we would now consider North American football, we need to go back to England in the 19th century. In 1845, the rugby school in Warwickshire established formal rules for the game known as rugby, clearly named after the school. This was on the heels of an earlier move by the University of Cambridge, whom, two years prior, first codified the rules to association football, which most Europeans continue to refer to as football, and many North Americans call soccer. As an aside, soccer was a slang for association football, the SOC, the SOC, in association much like rugger, was a slang for rugby. It's no surprise that with the strong ties between Canada and the United Kingdom, as well as the growing relationship between the UK and the United States, both association football and rugby found their way quickly to North America. The first recorded game of rugby on Canadian soil 
took place in 1865, when British military officers played a match against students from McGill University. The game of rugby quickly caught on in central Canada, especially amongst collegiate institutions, and soon Canadian universities and colleges were playing each other and even traveling to the United States to play in cross-border matches. In May of 1874, the McGill rugby team traveled to Boston to play Harvard's rugby team. But both teams played a very different style of rugby. McGill used a ball that looked more like a modern-day football, while Harvard used one that looked more like a soccer ball. Under McGill rules, a player could kick or pick up the ball and run with it at any time. Yet under Harvard's rules, known as the Boston game, a player could only pick up the ball and throw it or run with it if he was being pursued by an opposing player. In general, when it came to both soccer and rugby, there were a wide variety of versions throughout Canada and the United States. And teams, be it college teams or community clubs, would have to decide on the rules being played ahead of time. For instance, when McGill and Harvard clashed in May of 1874, they played the Boston rules on the first day and McGill rules on the second. In fact, the response to the McGill rules was so overwhelmingly positive that Harvard adopted the McGill rules going forward. Yet, Harvard and other American schools did not stop there they continued to make modifications to the game. And as the 19th century came to a close, this game of rugby began to resemble a hybrid between what we would recognize as rugby and elements of modern American football. This hybridized version of early American rugby football spread throughout the U.S. In 1876, Harvard, Columbia, Yale, and what would become Princeton formed the American Intercollegiate Football Association, where they would effectively play this hybridized sport, now being referred to as football. But the birth of what we would call modern American football is traced back to 1880. It was that year that Walter Camp, a player at Yale, proposed radical changes to the game at that year's U.S. College Football Rules Convention. The key change was replacing the contested scrimmage, i.e. two sides engaging each other for the ball, with the line of scrimmage, where the team with possession of the ball has an uncontested start to their play. So effectively, what we would recognize as the modern-day offensive and defensive lines. Camp is also credited with reducing the number of players on the field from 15 to 11. Two years later, 1882, Camp introduced a system of downs, whereby the offense had three downs to gain five yards or lose possession of the ball. Camp is also credited with introducing the modern points system and even the standard offensive arrangement of players. For obvious reasons, many in the U.S. still call Walter Camp the father of modern American football. Now, Despite these dramatic changes, effectively hybridizing rugby to the point that it was now an early recognized form of modern American football, 
Canadian rugby football was much slower to evolve. At the collegiate level, there were a number of teams still playing what we would consider the English game of rugby. Yet, throughout the country, community organizations were being formed to govern how teams played rugby football in their areas. Note that the term rugby football is being used because some people still referred to it as rugby and others referred to the same game as football. So in Quebec, the Quebec Rugby Football Union was formed, and this included McGill University. In Ontario, you had the Ontario Rugby Football Union. And in 1894, these two unions joined together under the direction of what was intended to be a national body known as the Canadian Rugby Union, the CRU. Two years earlier, the Manitoba Rugby Football Union was formed and agreed to play by CRU rules. And by 1907, the Alberta Rugby Football Union and the Saskatchewan Rugby Football Union joined the CRU. Despite the CRU being a quasi-national governing body, there were still significant differences over what kind of rules should be played. Some still held on to the classic rules of English rugby, primarily in Ontario and Quebec, while others began to adopt a more hybridized version, often referred to as the Burnside Rules, named after University of Toronto rugby captain John Burnside. The Burnside rules resembled the American game more so than the traditional English rugby game. Each team had 12 players on the field, only six were allowed on the line of scrimmage, and the center had to snap the ball back to the quarterback as opposed to pitching it heel back, as was done in rugby. As well, interestingly enough, while the American game had five yards for a first down, The Burnside rules adopted 10 yards for a first down, still having only three downs to gain those 10 yards. Of course, it's also worth pointing out that even then, the American game played on a smaller field, one only 53 and one-third yards in width compared to the standard Canadian field, which was 65 yards in width. The width of the Canadian field is rather interesting regarding certain rule disparities between the Canadian and American game. In Canada, none of the versions of rugby football allowed for players to block defenders away from the ball carrier, obviously a key characteristic of the modern game. Because they could not block for the ball carrier, Canadian teams would instead run extension plays, or what today we would call a double option play. The lead runner would have the option to pitch laterally to another runner, who in turn could do the same. The wide width of the Canadian field allowed these extension plays to be run quite successfully, as the player who had just pitched the ball would effectively become an obstacle for any potential tackler without actively blocking said tackler. He would just be in the way. These extension plays, clearly resembling rugby, were common across the country by the beginning of the 20th century, and they were effective because of the width of the Canadian field. At the same time that the Canadian game struggled to break free of its rugby roots, the American game continued to undergo significant changes. 
1905, there was serious concern over the dramatic rise in injuries and even death in American college football. This led, incredibly, to then-President Theodore Roosevelt calling for changes to the game to make it less violent. The result of this was the formation in March 1906 of the Intercollegiate Athletic Association of the United States. Four years later, this body's name changed to the National Collegiate Athletic Association, otherwise known as the NCAA. There were an immense amount of reforms made to the game for the 1906 season, but a few highlight why the game was so violent in the first place. One new rule stated that the offense could no longer run a masked play. A masked play was one of the most common plays run in football up to that year, and this was effectively where the backfielders would mass as a group and then simply charge forward into the defenders, kicking and punching and inching their way forward. Also, to avoid these massed plays, which caused immense amounts of injuries, the offense now had to move the ball 10 yards to get a first down, thus nullifying some of the advantages of the massed play. Other rules included linemen on either side of the ball having to start in a down position, Opposing linemen had to also begin the play one foot apart. As well, new rules were put in regarding the use of hands for blocking, and tacklers could not tackle below the knee. One of the most important reforms, however, was the implementation of the forward pass. There were strict limitations on the forward pass. For instance, you could not throw one more than 20 yards down the field, nor could you throw one across the goal line. But effectively, these reforms brought the forward pass officially into the American game. And after 1906, the forward pass would become one of the key features that distinguished the American game from the Canadian game, which still relied on its extension plays and running backs. In fact, in 1909, the Ottawa Rough Riders and Hamilton Tigers were invited to New York to demonstrate the Canadian game in an exhibition match at Van Cortland Park. More than 12,000 fans attended the event on a cold December 11th. And in the aftermath, the New York Times wrote that the Canadian game proved to be even more violent than the American one. Part of the reason being that without the forward pass, the game was still primarily focused on smashing a ball carrier into the defense over and over again. In 1912, the American game diverged even further from the Canadian one. The offense now had four downs to achieve 10 yards. A touchdown was changed to six points. There were now no limits on how far passers could throw the ball, and passers could now throw across the goal line. The field was shortened to 100 yards in length, but the end zones were now extended to 10 yards in depth to accommodate passing into the end zone. Curious Canadian history. We'll be back after the break. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Folks, if you're looking for ad-free content from Curious Canadian History, look no further. Sign up to Patreon today, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. All you need to do is sign up and donate one or two bucks to the podcast via Patreon, and you can access all our episodes for free without any advertisement or sponsorship content. That's Patreon. Sign up today. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. It's interesting to note that while the American game was evolving rapidly into the modern game we know today, the Canadian game still held on stubbornly to its rugby roots. By 1921, most of the rugby football unions across the country had adopted variations of the Burnside rules, with blocking now being legal. Yet, there was also a penalty box where players were forced to sit for 3 to 10 minutes depending on the nature of their infraction. The major sticking point, however, was the forward pass. The CRU was still very reluctant to allow the forward pass into the game. It was not until 1929 that the CRU finally permitted the forward pass to be used, but confusingly, only for Western Canadian rugby football unions and with limitations. For instance, the forward pass could only be attempted on first or second down, and if there was an incomplete pass, this would result in a turnover. In central Canada, the game was still being played without the forward pass, and this would make the Grey Cup rather problematic. The Grey Cup's origins stem from 1909. It was that year that Governor-General Lord Earl Grey donated it to the CRU to be the championship trophy for Canadian football. That very year, the University of Toronto won the first Grey Cup, beating another Toronto team 26-6. By 1921, the Grey Cup was meant to be an East-West affair. That year, the Toronto Argonauts beat the Edmonton Eskimos 23-0. One of the issues surrounding the Grey Cup, however, was the fact that often Western teams were showing up playing different rules than Eastern teams. And much of these rule variations revolved around the use of the forward pass. Western teams used it. Eastern teams did not. It did not seem to make much of a difference in the outcomes of the championship games, however, because no Western team won the Grey Cup until 1935, when the Winnipeg Winnipegs beat the Hamilton Tigers 18-12. What the implementation of the forward pass did, however, was make the game more interesting for fans. On September 22, 1929, in a game between the Calgary Tigers and Edmonton Eskimos, Calgary's Jerry Sieberling, a halfback from Des Moines, Iowa, completed the first forward pass in Canadian football. Fans and media alike praised this new dynamic aspect of the game. Weirdly, the CRU continued to prevaricate on implementing the forward pass. In February 1930, they banned it altogether. 
Then, a short time later, after significant protests from the Western unions, readopted it, but with even stricter rules. For instance, a forward pass could no longer cross the line of scrimmage. The argument by many Eastern teams, which heavily influenced the CRU, was that the forward pass was simply not effective. However, others within the game argued that resistance to the forward pass was more about resistance to American rules and less about the nature of the game itself. Despite the constant back and forth, it was clear that the forward pass made the game more exciting, and in 1931, the CRU finally decided to adopt the forward pass along the same lines as the American game. By the end of the 1930s, the amateur nature of Canadian football was giving way to professional clubs. The last amateur team to win the Grey Cup was in 1936, and from then on, teams with paid players, many of whom were American, were competing for the Grey Cup. It is interesting to note the terminology being used by the 1930s in regards to the sport. Many people in Western Canada, who were more used to the forward-passing aspect of the game, i.e. the American style, began to refer to the sport as football, like the Americans. Yet, newspapers still commonly referred to it as rugby. In Eastern Canada, many still referred to it as Canadian rugby. As well, Canadian terminology on the positions differed significantly from the American game. The tight end was called the outside wing the tackle a middle wing, the guard an inside wing, and the center a snapback. In the backfield, Canadians referred to the left halfback, the right halfback, and, same as in the U.S., a quarterback. The 12th man on the field was referred to as the flying wing, the Americans having only 11 on the field. As well, even in the 1930s, a touchdown in a Canadian game only got you five points as opposed to six in the U.S. And of course, the infamous Canadian Rouge, that is, kicking the ball anywhere through the back of the end zone, even if missing a field goal, scored you one point. The game would continue to evolve and adapt, and like so many Canadian cultural institutions, would always be compared and contrasted to the American equivalent. While the National Football League emerged in 1922, later merging with the American Football League in 1967, the Canadian Football League wasn't formed until 1958, and by 1966, it became the sole trustee of the Grey Cup. While today the two games are relatively similar looking, there are still aspects that differentiate the Canadian from the American one. Three downs as opposed to four, a bigger field, a bigger ball, a twelfth player, and a smattering of different rules. The game continues to draw huge crowds in the Canadian prairies, where the forward pass first emerged in Canada, but less so in Canada's major urban centers. Meanwhile, the NFL, of course, has global popularity. Yet, like so many aspects of the Canadian cultural landscape, many Canadians point to the CFL and the Canadian game with pride, another small way to differentiate Canada from America something Canadians have been doing long before Canadian footballers first started arguing over the implementation of the forward pass, and something we will probably continue to do for years to come.
I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D O C B O R Y S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends. 